0: This is PSG Talk contributor Mark Damon, and this is PSG Small Talk for Saturday, December 15th, 2018. Uh, We did not talk small today. We talked very, very large. It's a long show, as you can probably tell from looking at the timestamp, but it is a very good show. I had Mel Brennan on, and we talked about a lot of sort of big picture PSG things, and it's one of my favorite shows that I've done because we were able to drill in on some really kind of big-picture key issues and really have some good long-form philosophical discussions. It's PSG Philosophy 101 here on uh, PSG Small Talk today. But before we get into that, I'm going to just address this really, really quickly, because I didn't want it to, like... I, I don't want to make this about myself, because I really don't. It's not my style. But... I sent out a tweet yesterday just sort of hyping up the um, the PSG Small Talk podcast that Guillaume and Peter had, uh, Peter from Culture PSG, about tactics, and I just said something like, you're not going to get this from any other you know, media source. You're not going to get it from ESPN FC, Fox Soccer, NBC Soccer, Bleacher Report. You're just not going to get it from them because they don't cover PSG like we cover it. And... Uh, that's factual i don't think you really can dispute any of that however um mr craig burley i don't think he took offense to it but he's he's a his gimmick his his television personality gimmick is that he's kind of a smart ass and he went up said oh look a, a a fan site talking about their team bravo you know whatever And it generated this large response that I didn't necessarily see coming, but I appreciate it because I think that in this world of a lot of media and a lot of people talking at you, for you to find our little slice of heaven here, our little podcast, our little website, For you to find us and follow us and choose us as your sort of source for PSG, we appreciate that more than you realize. And I think that I just want to say thank you. I got about a bunch of new Twitter followers because of it. So thank you to Craig Burley because he gave us attention and he didn't have to do that. And I think he unwittingly did so. So thank you, Craig. Um, and I think that a show like the one that we're doing today is a reason why there is this sort of divide between the mainstream soccer media in this country and in England and what sites like ours and other people's do. Like, uh, like what Tyler Dunn's podcast does and what Canary Blue do and what, um, a plenty of other Arsenal fan TV, United stand, whatever Liverpool does, we do something different. It's not less than because we're punt we're fans. It's equal, but it's different. And I think that I think we all have to respect that. And I think that ESPN FC would be way better off if they sort of began to sort of understand that there is this world and that there's a reason people will listen to our show as opposed to theirs. And again, they're not obviously going to start talking PSG all the time, but they can adjust and they can make the shows a little more tactics oriented, a little more deep in depth and discussion and not so much about I'll take my side and you'll take your side and we'll have hot takes and we'll get people to click on our Twitter posts and all that stuff. Maybe this makes a difference, it probably won't, but I'm glad that the discussion was had. So, enough about me, on to the show, Um, make sure to follow PSG Talk on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, subscribe to our podcasts, and visit our Patreon page, please. Um, If you like what we do, and you want to support, sort of, I, I guess you'll call us a small internet blogging business, we're not really a business, we don't make money, but... We do appreciate your support and financial support, especially because it allows us to do some cool things, get some new microphones, uh, get our advertising budget up. If you support small, as Craig Burley deridingly said, online bloggers, well, why don't you support our little online blog? So without further ado, on with the show. Uh, So, for those of you joining us for the first time because Craig Burley opened his fat mouth, um, welcome. (laughs) And uh, on the show today, I am pleased to welcome um, Mel Brennan, a PSG Talking contributor. Mel, nice to have you on the show. How are we doing this fine Saturday?
1: Mark, I really appreciate you having me. It's outstanding. I've been listening to you for a long time. Happy to be here. Um, You know, you are um, the big brother to the, to the work we do over on the podcast so I'm happy to be here and, and, and drill down today with you.
0: Oh thank you. you're making me blush. But um, for the five of us that the five of us that listen to my show and maybe not PSG talking all the time, just explain your sort of PSG story, your background into how you got into the club, what you actually do, what your real job is, and sort of how you got involved with us.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, I I got involved with PSG um, uh, through a minorities and engineering program, actually, run out of RCA, where at the end of it, they were giving away uh, Commodore content. And in that content um, was a lot of media matter about George Weah. Um, And this is at the time when he was with PSG, and their sponsor was Commodore. And, um, you know, it piqued my interest. I had played soccer growing up. Um, And I said, you know, who's this guy? What's he about? And I discovered that this guy was essentially an emergent superstar. You know, a lot of people know George for being the 1995 World Player of the Year, but the credibility for that award wasn't built at Milan, it was built at PSG. Um, And so... Um, I paid attention at that time to George and George made me pay attention to Paris and that made me pay attention to the fact that oh wow, there was this club in, in Paris a city I loved um, they were essentially a united right? they were a merged club um, that has its own drama in history. and history and then I found out that this club was merged and founded essentially the day before I was born. So they're 12 August 1970. I'm 13 August 1970. So um, I felt a lot of synergy with them ever since that point. Um, I decided that they were my club and um, have been involved and, and a, a supporter and a fan and engaged with them ever since. Um, you know, sort of, you know, a, a little bit above and beyond that, I ended up working for a while in the early 2000s uh, uh, for Concacaf. Um, and for FIFA as the uh, North American liaison for the eFIFA project, and um, you know, just uh, you know, really got to to dive into my love for world football. Um, it didn't really benefit me at the time in terms of <laughs> access to to PSG, in part because they were terrible at the time. Um, but, um, you know, I can recall uh, that game where we lost uh, after being up 3-0 to deeper Tiva La Carina 4-3 um, and uh, watching that on a 30-foot big screen somewhere in New York City um, and, and just being at a low point uh, in my fandom. <laughs> um, but, you know, a life in world football, world football governance, just rem- uh, allowed me to see some of these players close up and reminded me you know, uh, of the, the level of skill that we're talking about um, at the highest level. So the CPSG that evolve from, you know, the sort of colony capital uh, uh, struggling uh, Amara DNA, are we going to get relegated, period, uh, to a different funding model that allows us to bring uh, some of the world's best players over um, in a smart way um, has been just a revelation and a journey for me that I really enjoyed.
0: Yeah, I love it being called a different funding model. That's a, that's a that's a very good way to describe exactly what uh, exactly what happened. It's different. Um, so Mel, I I wanted you on today because I really wanted to go in depth on some. I guess we'll call this episode questions and theories because I really wanted to sort of have a deeper look at sort of the last year and a half, two years of this club and kind of understand where we are now and some of the things that have sort of evolved, I would say, since the end of the Zlatan Ibrahimović era. And the first thing I kind of wanted to get in touch with was this club sort of becoming a marketing giant. And Once QSI took it over, you kind of had a feeling that to grow this club, they were going to have to not only grow this club on the field, but also grow this club commercially. And it seems to have really sort of taken off, uh, and I would say in concurrence, or maybe more specifically as a consequence of acquiring Neymar. And I talked about this, you know, in the beginning when we signed him, which is, this is more than a football player. It's it's a it's a window into something that PSG never really were able to touch before or to see, which is the the just massive marketing potential when you have star players. And obviously, Kylian Mbappe, you add him to that list. So, just as somebody who's watched this club from the Canal Plus uh, ownership time, and what it was to what it is now, just sort of talk about how PSG have transformed themselves not really just on the field, but just as a brand, because I almost find that as fascinating as them being transformed as a club on the field
1: No, absolutely absolutely, you know the, the uh, what's interesting and powerful about PSG and, it, and it'll, it'll bring us all the way back full circle to this idea of um, what ownership, the funding model, uh, how much of a difference ownership can make, right? But when you go back into the history of the club as the club, you know, the history of the club goes back to 1904, but the history of PSG as PSG, obviously, as it said, goes back to 1970. Um, but we, we know that PSG began to do things of meaning, uh, really starting in 1973, and what happened in 1973 well, a fashion designer took over the club, right? So even in a guy named Daniel Ekdea, right, and, and and he took over the club, um, and you know hired a coach, um, uh, a football legend in France named Joseph Fontaine, and he and they won, uh, League One, uh, promotion to League One that year, right? And that was the beginning of a 1970s era of attracting quote unquote stars. Um, to to PSG, but the the unity of brand and legends and stars had its nascent rise, you know, with PSG very early on. Um, partly because it's in the it's in the city of light, um, you know. Uh, so, but what does it mean? How do you take that moment uh, and that that phenomena and then infuse it with all of the strength, all of the, the power, all of the expertise that QSI either brings to the table or, to be very frank with you, hires, right, in terms of advisors and, and such. Well, that brings us to the current moment. And, you know, the current moment, um, I think it's right to, to talk about this in the context of this particular podcast, you know, because I don't think we have seen this before at this level, with this level of intensity, with this level of what I call brand equity, right? Brand equity is is this notion of, you know, the, the trust, interest, curating, however you want to measure it, of a particular brand across not only an audience of fans, but an audience of folks who don't necessarily follow you. Right. Yeah. So what so what's what's the um, difference now? The difference now is that Al Khalefi's project and its focus on from the very beginning, to be frank with you, its focus on building a global lifestyle brand has combined with its funding model that allowed it to bring allowed it to bring players like Neymar and emergent superstars like Mbappe, and you know, obviously nothing was better for PSG's project uh, from a brand standpoint than killing Mbappe and the French national team bringing home the World Cup um, to to build brand equity at a level I don't think we have seen before. Certainly not in a football club, and and maybe not in a, not in, in a in a in a uh, in a sports club ever. Right? yeah now you'll have folks who are invested in Barcelona and Real Madrid and, and Manchester United who will challenge that notion but none of those clubs were able to bring Michael Jordan out of his pocket yeah. <laughs> you know which was a very disciplined um, basketball centered sort of trended a little bit into golf content um, but a very disciplined Jordan brand and have it cross over into a Jordan-PSG partnership and product that is, you know, top one, top three, top five in terms of lifestyle branding, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think when it comes to that Jordan partnership, a lot of it has to do with growth. And you talk about Barcelona and Real Madrid. These are brands that already have this sort of higher Q rating, in that people know Barcelona, people know Real Madrid, and it's not like there's going to be thousands, if not millions, of new customers to their brand. Their brands are their brands. If you like Real Madrid, you kind of like Real Madrid. It's not like they're going to all of a sudden become more recognizable than they already are. PSG is a while it's been a brand that, as its brand, has been around for 45 years, 48 years at this point, it's still a growing business. And I think that what's been appealing about this brand for people, especially in the fashion world, is that, well, it's two things. One, it's a brand that is clearly growing. And it's growing at a pace that I don't think other soccer brands around the world can match. secondly the the shield which you, you don't necessarily think about it all the time but that shield has that uh, kind of iconic potential like it it's a fashionable look like right. Manchester United Shield is not fashionable like West Ham United Shield is not fashionable.
1: No, you don't you're not gonna find women who want that on their female clothing. Right yes.
0: for example. And it's like it, it can be designed in different ways, it can be made, made to look it looks good in black, it looks good in black and white, it looks good in the regular colors, it looks good in basically any design you give it. So it just it it works in that way. And I think sometimes these things are happy accidents even more than they're total designs like right
1: right like most like mo- like most incredible things that
0: happen right? yeah and it to, like
1: posted notes
0: yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah exa- exactly <laughs> who would think that would work but then it's like yeah of course it works it's it it's more intuitive than you'd think and I think that there's this whole world of soccer and football that doesn't sort of understand PSG and what they exactly they're doing and it's like there was this article written after Liverpool after the Liverpool loss in September. I don't even I don't even want to give the guy credibility for it, but it's like you just talked about like what is PSG? It's a vanity project. They don't even play real football. It's like you're missing the whole point, which is if you put the right players in place, eventually the in the right manager in place, it, it takes a while, but eventually the football is going to come. But if you have this great football team, that's not enough to sort of right. trans. It's not the ambition of QSI to just have a great football team.
1: Like, right, and their and, and their yeah. focus is not to appeal to just exclusively and even with primacy, um, you know, the two ends of the stadium that stand the whole match. Yeah, that's not that that will not sustain a club. Uh, beyond the moment, right? So it, it's not it's not surprising that at the same time we uh, launched this this uh, PSG-Jordan partnership that we also have a Trophy de Champion happening where? In China. Where, exactly as you talked about, growth is the um, key operating principle. The growth of not only the uh, emergent middle class in China, but their particular focus, that middle class and upper middle class that's emergent in China, on an obsession with luxury brands, right? Yeah. Is a perfect example of what we're talking about in terms of how much more growth there is in a partnership with PSG than, you're right, there would be in brands that may have peaked in, in, in... organizations like um, Real Madrid and others.
0: And what makes it really, I think, what makes it really even more interesting is that you do have the right stars in place. And you have a a mixture of youth. Neymar's 26, Mbappe's 19 years old. Like, these are young, fresh-faced, energetic, relatively good-looking young men who... For the most part, are exceptional role models, and I wouldn't even say for the most part. I think Neymar is an exceptional role model for, you know, for most kids to kind of ascribe to be like. And Kylian Mbappe obviously has that, you know, has that kind of quality to him. And it's like you're not only attracting, you know, women or men, or you're attracting children too. And it's like. You're you're trying to grow that next generation of fans that are going to follow your product for 20, 30 years, and those kids right now are seven, eight, nine years old, and they're buying they're buying Neymar jerseys, they're buying Mbappe jerseys, they're not necessarily buying Ronaldo and Messi right now, because no. again, you buy you you buy low and you sell high, and at this point, I mean, Messi can't get any more than he's been, Ronaldo's not going to get any more popular than he is. But no
1: those are those are diminished propositions when your focus is on growth yeah you know and and word on the street is that you know the Jordan brand was thinking about a football collaboration for a couple of years and examined opportunities with Barcelona inter Milan Chelsea and others but the emergent brand opportunity was PSG and the reason is for all the things we've just talked about, which is there's only upside here, right? Yes. <laughs> there's nothing but upside here. Um, you have an emergent global superstar in Kylian Mbappe. You have an established global superstar whose focus is also on brand in Neymar. You're right in that you never hear about these guys outside of football uh, doing the wrong things. You know, and as a PSG fan, I'm obviously knocking on wood right now, right? Um, but you never, you never hear about that. Um, what you hear about with them is these types of smart uh, interconnections, these types of um, synergistic uh, opportunities. They do it with their own shoes. They do it with the cl- uh, clothing lines that they're interested in. And so it just creates a flywheel of positive momentum for the brand with PSG as, as not only it's doing it as, as a brand of, of, of a club and a, and a lifestyle to be frank itself, because the folks that pick on us a little bit about, well, what is PSG? You know, the, the better question that they can ask is what is PSG? What is PSG overall trying to be? And for the football, um, uh, exclusive adherence, they're not going to like the answer because right now PSG is a football brand. PSG is a handball brand. PSG is a feminine football brand. PSG is now a lifestyle brand in its partnership with partnerships like PSG is a lot of different things to a lot of different people. um, And, you know, it may give priority and attention to different areas at different times. um, But, the, the characteristic of that brand is exclusive high level high performance and that's been manifested in the in the transfer and recruitment front but it's also been manifested in these partnerships
0: yeah and i would say too that it 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 becomes more of an attractive product for a younger player to want to come and play for and I think that we're still at that point where it's not quite there, but you can see that, obviously, a player like a Frankie de Jong, who, 21-year-old kid, has been really good for Ajax, does he go to an established, sort of, top, long-standing member of the football elite? Does he go to play for Barcelona, or does he play for Manchester United, or somebody like that? Or does he go for sort of the branding opportunity of playing in Paris with other sort of top elite players who have their own sort of branding legacy, I think you're going to have players asking that question. And once PSG gets sort of clear of some of this financial issue that they have, which we could spend another show on, but it's it does hamper you a bit. But is it going to get to a point where This is sort of a a sort of lightning in a bottle sort of five-year trend where PSG are a top flight club and they sort of visit and then go sort of back down or can they sustain it? And I think the sustaining it part comes from their ability to recruit these younger players and to sort of give them a blueprint as to how they can grow their brands financially. And some players are going to care about that stuff. Some players aren't. But I think...
1: And and the the younger the player is, the more likely they are to have lived a life that's reflective of some of this work. Right? Like, you and I are a little bit older. You know, our, you know, if you think about, you know, our um, wider network of friends, acquaintances, and community... I would argue that a, a far less of a percentage of my community is, for example, virtual than some of these cats, right? Yeah. Neymar has millions of people in his virtual community. Well, this is the way that some of these younger players have actually grown up. So, you know, I'll give you another example is in the, in the dialogues that we're having with folks like DeYoung, Frankie DeYoung, who's involved? Well, guys like uh, Yassine Jada are involved. And if you don't know, you know, for our listeners, if they don't know who Yassine Jhadda is, that's PSG's chief gaming officer. Oh yes, PSG has an esports component as well, mm. right? Mm. And so they're saying to young cats like this who were thinking about coming on board, hey, do you play any of these games? Are you involved in any of these communities? Oh well, we have a whole community that does that as well, right? Yeah. So so it's it is so. Um, uh, very much different than when, you, when um, even when Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo were beginning in the game, the, 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 the opportunities uh, to connect young people uh, to not only their interests, but to get them to see themselves. And some of them come in with that, like Neymar came to us with that, but, but to get them to see themselves um, as, um, as brands as well as players. Um, and and to understand the opportunity that they can have with an organization like PSG that gets that um, is a powerful one. And I think it's a differentiator for us going forward. Um, You're asking the right question and saying, what does it take to sustain that at the highest level? And I think you had the right answer, which it begins with players who were raised in an environment where they would expect that. Right. Versus some of the older players who may say, you know, that's not necessarily how I see myself, or that's necessarily for me. It's more going to be the younger players who who didn't know anything else other than this type of environment.
0: Yeah. And also you'll have a player like a Gianluigi Buffon, who was at Juventus for what, 17 years or something. And it's like he realized that where's he going to go where he's going to be able to sort of set himself up for the next 30 years of his life. Right. And going to a place like Paris and submerging yourself in that culture and making those connections in the fashion world and the music world and whatever other worlds he's interested in, here's a guy that's planning for his future. And that's right. he's putting himself in a situation where he's not just going to be this sort of ex-football player who goes on, you know, and makes appearances and shows up at the training ground once in a while. Here's a guy that's going to have opportunities now to sort of have a second life. And I think that's also the power of being in a place like Paris. And uh, before we kind of move on to the next topic here, I kind of wanted to just, do you think that the people that are sort of negative towards Paris Saint-Germain, do you think it's that they don't sort of see this? Or is it that they see it and they don't want it?
1: That's a powerful and interesting question. I think that you probably have folks that are in both camps, right? Because, you know, on the one hand, um, you know, not everybody um, actually sees beyond, you know, the the Monday night football game that's presented on their television, right? Right. Um, and understands that there's this whole world of other content and other opportunities out there. They just don't see it. Um, but on the other hand, you do have people who see that this is a particular permutation of high-level activity, in this case high-level sport, right, what they call high-level power and performance sport with a focus on a – on a. Um, conformity to a high sports ethic, right? That's where the Dallas Cowboys and the New York Yankees and the Paris St. play, right? And you do have a group of people who don't like it when they see it in the Dallas Cowboys, they don't like it when they see it in the New York Yankees, and they don't like it when they're seeing it with, with PSG. Um, my argument to those folks is when you have uh, the environment you have, and you talked a little bit about it just now, you're in Paris. Right? Yeah. You're in a cultural fashion taste making capital of the world. Right? Yeah. There are only a few of those, right? Dortmund isn't that. Manchester isn't that. Right? So you would never have a club clubs coming up in those environments that would think that way. But you you have you have it in Milan, right? They think about the connection between Sport and fashion brands, right? They, their players think about lives beyond football in the context of those opportunities, and you have it in Paris, right? So yeah, I mean, I think there are people who say this is not what I want my sport to look like. Um, sometimes when you drill down with those folks though, and you ask them well, what do you want their, your sport to look like, all they can do is time travel back to 1978, and. You know, uh, unfortunately, time travel hasn't been created, and we're not going to go backwards. We're going to go forward. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think it. it is, I don't think it impacts the reality of. You know, I'm a big fan of Eduardo Galeano. He wrote a short book of poems called Soccer and Sun and Shadow, um, and he opens the book with this idea of being a guy that just looks around the world and just goes, "A beautiful move. Show me a beautiful move for the love of God. Just that's all I want to see." And that that sensibility has never gone away from football, right? This I, I carry that sensibility as well. It's like when I watch something, I just want to see something incredible that I know I can't do happen on the field, and I want to be a part of that moment when it happens. Um, you know, as PSG fans, you and I know we're, we're seeing more and more of that than the than we've ever seen yeah. in the terms of the quality of the players that we brought on board. But that only happens and only is sustained if um, uh, Al-Kalefi and his team find a way to diversify the revenue stream, and, and a way to build the brand equity. And I think they're right on track. So that would be my answer to those folks.
0: Absolutely. And the sport has always been, even more than some others, an aesthetic sport. Like That's right. Football is not really an aesthetic sport in the sense that it is more about the result. It's about the violence. It's about it's about the sort of the combat. American football, I mean. It, right. it, it, soccer more sort of fits along with basketball and sort of... You you watch it in moments sometimes more than you even watch it in just the flow of the game, and it, it's those sort of it's those moments that sort of catch you and it's like as a fan you become a fan of that sport because you see a dunk or you see a spectacular three point shot or you see something really athletic and it catches your eye, and soccer has that same effect where you mostly become you don't become a fan unless you're sort of in a certain situation because you you know watch the team and your dad watched the team and your grandfather watched the team like that's not going to happen as much anymore it's going to be about right. what you see in the moment and aesthetically what you look at and that comes down to the look of the jersey the Jordan brand and how PSG look on the field how they play on the field and when you're a 6 7 year old kid who's exposed to all of this sort of media and you're and I'm I'm a school teacher so I sort of understand the idea that these kids just they see so much media and they see so many things and stuff that you really need to have something that catches their eye to really get their attention and I think PSG as a club sort of has that element and and I think what will take you know what will help psg sort of stand the test of time here is the ability to keep having those types of players come through to win obviously you want to be successful because the more successful you are the more people watch you and just being able to sort of have that identity of a club that is fashionable it's cool to watch they're a cool team to follow the players are cool They're fun. They're not sort of sticking the muds. They're not, you know, putting their head down. and all. You have to have some of that obvious flair. And I want to kind of talk about the sort of transformation of the club in the last even just sort of two years, but specifically the last four months under Tomas Tuchel. And I sort of, the synergy that's starting to happen, because we just had the brand discussion. Now I kind of want to have the on-field discussion. So... Let me pose sort of my question to you. PSG have had four managers under the QSI era. I don't really count uh, Combare because he was a holdover. And right. he was not a QSI pick. Obviously, they got rid of him the first chance they got. So they've had Encel- Carlo Ancelotti. They've had Laurent Blanc. They've had Unai Emri, And now they've had Tomas Tuka. And... Going back two years ago, they hired a coach that had won the Europa League three times, who had ro- risen through the ranks of Spanish football as a coach. Hard worker, honest guy, g- from all accounts, very good human being. He worked with young players well. He had a style that was somewhat aesthetically pleasing, a great countering style. He comes in, and within three months... He is essentially neutered as a influencing figure at that club. And essentially for the last year and a half, basically, he was there. He was a caretaker. Go to Tomas Tuchel, on the other hand, a guy who, quite frankly, had less of a resume than Unai Emery did. He comes in, was okay at Mainz. He took Dortmund to second place. They were a fun team to watch, but they didn't really win anything. They won the the German Cup. Okay, cool. And he had a falling out with Dortmund's management, and he got fired. So put those two resumes next to each other, and you didn't know who either one of them were or how the outcome would end up. Would you take... Emery or Tuchel? I think you would you would bet your money on Unai Emery in that's, that that's situation. Right. right. Obviously, it went completely the opposite way, and for now, it seems like Thomas Tuchel is the manager that PSG have been searching for. And my question to you is why? And I want to kind of focus on those three those early months. Why did why has Tuchel worked and Emery not?
1: I, 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 when I look at that, you know, this is something that I've thought about as Tuchel's success has emerged, right? Um, and you know, what 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 is the difference? And I, I, I it's analogous for me to, um, you know, sometimes the way that um, South American players, but Brazilian players in particular, come up learning the game, right? um as many know uh lots of uh brazilian kids kids come up playing not football but futsal right yeah. and what do, and what do they learn in futsal what they learn in futsal is how to play in triangles and multiple triangles small squad, small pass um uh, relationship football and then they take that to a wider pitch and play that same type of game up the pitch right um when you think about PSG, you have to think about it in small groups like that. It is not—the the, the roster, the first-team roster, is not a roster. It is a set of groups. And I think the mistake that Emery made when he first got there was twofold. One, he looked at the team as a team because the reality of his experience had been with clubs that, for the most part— sprang from a similar identity across the top to bottom on the roster, right? Mm. They may have had one or two outlying, quote-unquote, foreign players, but most of his successful Sevilla teams were made up of mostly Spanish players, right? Whereas he comes to PSG, and he's got a French contingent. You know, he's got an Italian contingent. He's got a Brazilian contingent, right? You know, essentially the small squads within the squad, right? That make up the squad. And so, if you come in and you don't understand that, that's to your detriment. The second thing is, I think he came in with an imposition personality. And I say the imposition personality, which is he sort of said, you know, this is sort of the way we're going to do it, um, as opposed to Tuchel. When Tuchel, I think, came in and understood that. It was important for him to speak French. It was important for him to understand keywords in Portuguese, right, so that everything wasn't running through translation or they didn't have to go to the unifying language of English. But also he came in beginning with, hey, I need I need to have a relationship with these players. So it was less transactional with Tuchel and more relational from the beginning. Yeah. And I think he understood earlier on the nature of the groups of players he had under his tutelage versus trying to treat them as a roster. That's my theory. Um, and what we're seeing now is things that we never saw under Unai Emery, right? Because Unai Emery didn't comport himself in that way. But I've seen multiple games now where I see pictures of Neymar in the post-game jumping into the arms of Thomas Tuchel. Right. Yeah. I'm seeing I'm seeing Thomas Tuchel in hugs and in in close physical relationships with with his players. Right. Um, I also think that how you publicly respond to when it doesn't go quite right. Is also important. Right. Um, what I learned, uh, you know, dialoguing with some of these players, Um, during my time in world football is half the time they don't even see uh, what the coach said in public. They hear from their entourage. They hear from their virtual community. They hear from somebody else, right? Oh, you know, Unai Emery threw you under the bus in terms of his answer to Lakeep the other day on why this, this and this didn't happen right? You don't really see that from Tuchel. You don't really see an ability of either L'Equipe, uh, Le Parisien, Le Monde, or any of the English newspapers in a position to be able to say, Tuchel's throwing this player under the bus, right? Yeah. Whereas Whereas there was a clear disconnect that went from uh, a, a sort of... Um, distanced relationship to a sort of oh I'm not going to start you to a sort of now the discourse is in the in the in the in the tabloids between say for example Unai Emery and, and Tiago Silva right um, and that ha- happened you know across um, uh, UEFA Champions League matches right. Um, Tuchel has never to this point has not put himself in a position where he wasn't able to put out what he thought was his best 11 across the most important games and see that's what Califi and the leadership team are looking at they don't really care how a head coach gets it done. They just don't want to be in a position where, because you haven't been able to figure out your relationship with your team, we can't deploy their, our best possible players, right? Or our best possible players are not in the right mindset because of their relationship with you. Yeah. And I think that sabotaged Unai Emery early and it became his legacy going forward.
0: It's it's also why I find sometimes the tactics discussion, and please listen to the uh, PSG talking with Guillaume and, Sim, uh, and Piotr, about tactics but yes absolutely please, everybody please, everybody please do listen that. to that <laughs> but that being said it's why I don't there's a reason I don't necessarily put all my eggs in the tactics basket when it comes to how teams perform on the field i don't necessarily think that thomas tuchel and unai emery are that far apart when it comes to their intelligence about the actual game i think that unai emery understands the game of football. Clearly, he understands how to put a team like Arsenal or Sevilla in a position where it can be successful and it can win games. He's showing his competency as a football mind. And I never doubted that he had that football mind. But I think that what has really been different is that Tomas Tuchel just thinks of the world in a different way than he thinks of the world more in the way that Pep Guardiola does. Right, right. He thinks right. about it as sort of a, I need to get the, I can have all of this brilliant tactical um, stuff in my head. But if I can't communicate it to these players, and if I can't make them do it, What's the point? All right. I am is just a guy who knows tactics because coaching to me is so much more than knowing the subject matter. It's about understanding people and understanding how to persuade people to do things for you because that's what you're doing. You're talking to people and you're trying to convince them to go against their instinct more than more times than not and do it in the way that you want them to do it, because you believe that that's the best way for success for the team. But then, in that, you have to convince some of these players that it's also in their best interest as well to do it the way that you want it done. And Unai Emery, just his brain never worked that way. His brain was, we're going to do these things, and I know what I want, I want them to play this way, and... The result, either the results will speak for itself, or you know we'll eventually get the right kind of players in to play the way that I want them to play. I I think that he was well intentioned. I feel like he just didn't understand that when you're dealing with a player like Neymar, you have to treat him differently than you would, let's say, a Edinson Cavani, because you tell Edinson Cavani to do something, he's probably going to do it. And he's probably not going to really say no. Or, like, Lucas Torreira. Like, do you think Lucas Torreira has ever said no to Unai Emery in the four months they've been around? Of course not. He's just going to do what he's told. And he's going to do it well. And he's going to work hard. Not that Neymar isn't going to work hard, but if you give him something that he doesn't agree with or that he's not comfortable with, he's not the type of guy that's going to go, okay, let's do that. He's going to question it.
1: Right. Or, Or if it's something that, you know, in the whole set of mechanisms that brought him to the club wasn't something that they talked about, yes. right? He's going to say, wait a minute. I, I was brought to the club to do these things. I agreed to come to the club because I wouldn't be doing these things. Now you're talking about something else entirely. What are you talking about?
0: Exactly. And it comes down to Tuchel's ability to persuade Neymar and to persuade Kylian Mbappe to play, not all the time, but to play uncomfortably. In certain situations. And again, it's about it's about persuasion. It's about convincing. And trust. And trust. And trust
1: right. And do you they have trust to, him yeah. to try and do a 10% ten percent of something different? And he says, if you do this 10% something different, you're going to be able to do a lot more of what we brought you here to do. Yes. You can say that, but a player has to trust you enough to believe that that's going to be the case.
0: Yes, and it's clear that Neymar... Gave this guy more of a chance than he ever gave Unai Emery. I think like but I
1: think I think that begins and ends with how you approach the players from the very beginning, yeah. and that's why I think it was smart for you to say in the in the early months. What's the difference? Well, in the early months, the difference was clear. Unai Emery came, and 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 we talk a little bit about Unai Emery in, in Spain, Unai Emery Unai Emery in Paris, and Unai Emery now in London. I don't think Unai Emery in London. Is as successful as he is right now without having the failures and the reflection on the failures that he had in Paris. Yes, I think Henry goes from right if he goes from Spain to London, he's going to make some of the same mistakes he made in Paris.
0: Yeah, right? we're, but, we're the accumulation now, of our experiences. That's just right. that that's that's a natural thing. But I also do believe that Arsenal were in a position where they're sort of the it's sort of that opposite day effect where. You're used to something for so long and then somebody comes in and does it differently and your players respond to that because for years they had the Arsene Wenger country club and now they got a guy that's, you know, actually pushing them and actually trying to challenge them to do things and most of their players are responding.
1: PSG... Yeah, but I also think it's more than what they call the dead cat bounce. I think, I think that, you know, it, that you're going to get that, that rebound mentality but I think it's also... I see him... Behave differently with Arsenal players yes. than he did with PSG players, and I think part of that is because he recognized, man, if I don't have a relationship with these players, my tactical mind doesn't matter.
0: Exactly, and it also it also comes down to I think PSG needed something different when they fired Laurent Blanc, and. I think Emery was supposed to be that something different, but he just, it never, it was never different enough where the players sort of went, okay, like they kind of saw through him a little bit, personality wise. And it's, you know, okay, yeah, sure. You know, we've been, you know, we have our 4 3 3. We're comfortable with it. We know how to play in it. And you're trying to make us play this 4 2 3 1 counter style. And, you know, screw you. We're going to do what we want because it works for us.
1: Well, and if you come in as a as a coach and you say, essentially, you know, I I I have titles. Yeah. But your titles are sort of like that second tier of titles. Yeah. Elite players like the ones we have are going to go, you know, stop asking me to give you respect for Europa League wins. Yeah. What we're trying to do here is on an inordinately higher level, right? That's like coming in and bragging about a silver. Metal, right? Mm-hmm. That, as opposed to Tuchel, who goes, I don't have none of that and I'm hungry. Yes. How can I position you so that we can all get something that yeah. I haven't gotten? I want what you've got, right? Yeah. He's looking at Neymar going, I want what you have. Danny Alves, I want what you have. How do I position you all to be successful? And they go, I can respect that. The players go, I can respect that. You know what you don't have and what you're trying to do, as opposed to coming in going, man, I got three European titles, and they go, yeah, at at the Europa level, you know, why should we be impressed with that?
0: Yeah, and I think that's also, it's also that, it's also that idea that you come in and you think you know what, you know, you you, you think you know tactically what you want to do, and you try to impose it and it doesn't work, as opposed to what Tuchel's doing, which is, He's not really playing in a style that I think he. If you asked him, "Hey, which sty- what style of football would you like to play at PSG?" I don't think he would say, "I want to play a four-four-two and play four center backs at the same time." But he's he's adapting to what he needs to do to be successful, so that eventually he can sort of stamp his, you know, he he can stamp his sort of mark at the club down the line as opposed to sort of wanting it all at the very beginning, which is sort of an improbability. And that's what Uh, he was able... Yeah, go ahead.
1: Well, I was going to end, you know, it was... Winning is an outstanding deodorant. Yes. Right? And so to start the season the way we started the season was also... but you can play that chicken and egg all the time. Did that happen because he came to the club with the right sensibility? Did that happen because he was able to establish himself with a certain core of players? And it was a World Cup year. So you got other players coming back later that allowed him to establish some cultural pieces earlier. You know, how did he reach out? to Neymar and Mbappe during that World Cup season after he had been hired yeah. to sort of read, lay the ground for them to come back and feel very comfortable, right? Yeah. Uh, there's lots of things we could talk about. One of the things I wanted to make sure I said, and, and I, I have to ask our listeners to forgive us because I referenced the Dallas Cowboys earlier. You referenced American football a little later, and now I'm coming back to one of those references, and I apologize, but it's to make a very important point. You know, one of the most, and it, and it comes back to this idea of understanding That there's the tactical side, and I love the fact that we have podcasts now that are analyzing that, um, regardless of what Craig Burley says. Mm. (laughs) And we have, there's the psychological side. And the reason I say that is because, uh, you know, when you look at um, coaches like Jimmy Johnson, uh, who coached the Dallas Cowboys to, to two straight Super Bowls, and if their owner had left the thing alone, it could have been four straight. Um, he was asked once, what's the secret to your success? He was asked that a lot of times, but one time he revealed the truth of that. He held up a book and he said, this book changed my life, changed the way I went about my business. And the book was a book called flow, flow, the psychology of optimal experience. And it's by a guy whose last name is straight-up Word Salad, right? His name is Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, right? Yeah. Um, but he was a University of Chicago professor that essentially put sensors on people for 40 years to establish what's really happening when we catch people in flow. We catch people in the zone. We catch people at one with the work that they're doing, performing at the highest possible level. And he took all that data and he put it in a book called Flow: The Psychology of Optimal Experience. And he listed what you really have to do to make sure people stay in flow as often as possible, right? And so, as soon as Jimmy Johnson held up that book, I bought it. I read it. I used it in my work with Disney. I used it in my work with FIFA. I use it in my work now. And That is an understanding of the fact that there is this huge psychological component to getting folks ready to perform at their best. I have no idea whether Tuchel has read the book, but I can tell you that if I had to guess between whether Unai Emery and Tuchel has read the book, I would think Tuchel has, right? He understands these principles of how to make sure that your players are in the zone as much as possible because he knows that's the key to his
0: success. Did you see the video on Twitter of him talking at like a symposium of some kind.
1: No, but that doesn't
0: surprise okay, me. Okay, so the basic idea was that he his play I don't know if he was talking about what he did at Mainz or whatever whatever he did. He, I'm not sure what, what club he did this at. But the idea was his team liked to play passes to the side and forward. Like like a box. Like the field is shaped the field is shaped like a rectangle. So they played passes in sort of a rectangular way. And what he wanted and what his coaches wanted was to play diagonally. Diagonally and forward at angles. So what he did was he essentially redrew the lines on the field so that the field was a diamond. And the idea being that instead of him yelling at his players to play the balls diagonally... He would just make the field a a diamond, and the players would have to naturally adapt to playing on a diamond field. So the passes would just naturally become more diagonal as you went, as opposed to starting off yelling at players saying, you need to play a diagonal pass, he, he set the environment up in a way that forced them to play diagonal passes. And I think that if there's anything that sort of accentuates the differences between a man like Unai Emery and Tomas Tuchel, it's that sort of idea, which is, here's a guy that's just constantly thinking, how do I optimize these players and how do I get the best out of them without sort of cajoling, persuading rather than cajoling? And I think that was... One of the more fascinating things I've seen from him, and it just sort of explains how his mind works. And I think the players respect that because it's different. Right. And they respect that difference, and they respect that he's trying these different things and that he sort of understands the psychological aspect. Um,
1: Yeah, he's working as hard... At being a high level coach yeah. and doing that high level stuff as he expects them to work as players.
0: Yeah. right? And let's talk about the team construction this year because I also feel like the team has been constructed differently this year, whether it be on purpose or by accident. And we talk about the transfer window, and there was this whole two months of who are we going to get, who are we going to sign, what big players can we get. And you end up getting Jean Luigi Buffon, um, Tilo Carrer. Um, Juan Bernat and Chupo Moting and Eric Maxim Chupo Moting. And a lot of people are saying, hey, what a terrible window. They got nobody that could really help them infect the games. And then you go to the Liverpool game. Right. The second Liverpool game. All four of them are playing. (laughs) Three of them are starting. One of them's coming off the bench. And I told you this before we went on the air, but. The way that PSG under QSI has been normally constructed is a team of stars and a team of people who think they're stars. And let's put it this way, is Lucas a better player than um, Eric Maxim Choupo-Moting? Probably, if you just look at the two. But there are certain players, whether it be by their mentality or by their skill set, who are not bench role players. There are people that need to play and start and get a lot of minutes. Javier Pastore is a perfect example of that. Why on earth would you have Javier Pastore and Neymar on the field at the same time? Like, what's the point? Right. You know, one essentially is, one's just a better version of the other. And to have a Javier Pastore on your bench is essentially a waste. It's a waste of resource and it's a waste of sort of efficiency. It's not an efficient roster. And it helps you in maybe the league, but it doesn't help you in the Champions League. And I think, again, whether by accident or by design, this PSG team is more reliant on sort of being top-heavy with stars, but also having role players. And at this point, I think Tilo Kerr can be considered a role player in that he plays a certain—he plays a lot of hats, he wears a lot of hats, but he's a role player. He's not a star um, Juan Bernat is definitely not a star, but he seems to play a role, and compare him to a guy like Levin Kurzawa, who I think sees himself as this big football star, but he can barely pass the ball out of his own end.
1: Right, he hasn't developed a moment since leaving Monaco.
0: Yeah, and compare that again to having a guy like Thomas Munier versus a guy like Serge Aurier, where Aurier, again, he thinks he's this big soccer star, you know... And Thomas didn't, didn't develop, just
1: didn't develop a moment
0: past the first big contract. Exactly. So I think more than in most years, I think this is a team that understood, or, or a coach that understood sort of the kind of players he wanted. I think he, he more maybe than even Henrique, got the guys he thought could fill holes. They just kind of want to talk about this idea of role-player. Well,
1: Enrique like, was never bringing um, Tilo Kerr and and, and Chupo Moteng to the club. We know that that's Thomas Tuchel. Yes. Right? But just um, that because
0: idea, because it's a very American idea. It's not really a European concept of like just having guys on your roster who are basically there to do three things really well and play like 15 minutes a game.
1: Well, I, I guess I would argue against that. I would argue that it is not... When you look at uh, the clubs that are not um, Manchester United, Manchester City, Real Madrid, Barcelona, when you look at particularly some of the Italian clubs, yeah. they are they are very, very focused, and the German clubs, they are very focused on having players that can do more than one thing or having players that are world-class at a specialty, but understanding how to put together a club. And the reason I think it's more intentional than it is uh, serendipity, although I don't think anybody uh, who went for Juan Bernat would say that Juan Bernat would open the scoring against Liverpool, both home and away, or whatever. (laughs) I just don't don't say I don't believe that, right? Um, But I do believe that what Tuchel has brought to the table... Uh, and you're right that there's been a change, and I, I would characterize it very similarly uh, between what QSI was doing before and what they're doing now, is there is a psychological weight to the considerations, right? Not only does the, was, does the person, can, can the person play the role we need them to play and do the things we need them to do, but what's their mentality going to be like when they are authentically a rotation player and they will not be really starting, Right? Yeah. Are they going to be a problem like Lucas Moore? Are they going to be agitating for a minutes or agitating for a trade? Or are they going to be somebody like Chupumoting who says thank you for any opportunity yeah. I get because I was just on a relegated Stoke squad, right? Are they going to be somebody like Juan Bernat who says thank you because I haven't been thought about by the Spanish national team in five years and and um, Bayern Munich has nothing good to say about me, but I can perform this role for you. Or I'm going to bust my butt. And it's it's the, the psychology of... The, these players um, is a new weight, and that has to be a result of the Tuchel regime, right?
0: Yeah, and it's important, I think, to keep in mind that th- there's been this there there's been this sort of I think shift, and it's started. I honestly think from that top um, that top of the of the the. I guess, Tuchel to be main. But I think also ownership has sort of allowed this. And I feel like the financial fair play issues have sort of given Tomas Tuchel an opening to sort of show that he can do these great things with certain guys that you didn't necessarily think he could. And I think it's it's sort of a, a, a nice thing for him to be able to show this. Because if you bring in, let's say, let's say at left back you bring in uh, Alexandra, Right. And at that point it's like, okay, if Alexandro plays well, is anybody going to credit Tomas Tuchel with Alexandro's success at left back? Right. No it's, one. No one. <laughs> and I think for a coach, I think sometimes it is more rewarding... And I I coached for a a while. I think it's more rewarding to get the most out of a guy who you don't necessarily think of as a star than to just sort of max out whatever you can get from the star. And I think what's been interesting here is that you go back to that 2016 transfer window where PSG almost set the club back five years. Uh Like, Hesse, Hesse, Ben Arfa... These guys were supposed to be role players, but they clearly didn't think they were. No. Uh, ben Arfa clearly thought he was the best player on the team. Um, Hesse thought he was more than a substitute winger. You know, Krakowiak was supposed to be that role player. He never was able to sort of adjust to the to the game that he was trying to play. And I, I just think that some of this, the issues that PSG have... I, I feel like have been solved by just sort of a simple recalibration of just roster construction.
1: Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I think you know the examples you just
0: used... as in just sorry, to cut, but isn't you didn't have to buy your way out of the problem? No, and I think for you had so to buy your we, way out of it. Yeah, right. It's for so you long PSG. Think... Sorry, for so long PSG fans have sort of been conditioned to be like, okay, we have a deficiency. Let's buy our way out of it. And I yeah, think what I, two, I, I, yeah, go ahead. Sorry.
1: Well, I was going to say there's two narratives there amongst the fans, right? One was exactly that, right? It was like, all right, it's Mercado, it's the transfer window. Who can we buy? Yeah. But the other narrative that was, oh, if, if you looked at some of the longer conversations that were happening online and other places, you finally got down to what other other teams have figured out a way to do this where they don't have to have a superstar in every role. Why, why can't we figure that out? Yeah. Right. How, what is the what is the way to put a team together? Who 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 is the better fit here? And, and and you would have to you would have to see a longer conversation to get to that, but there was that that second thoughtful set of, of fan discourse that came after what, what we all were you're right conditioned to, which is all right. It's a transfer window. Who can we buy? Right? Who can solve the problem? Right? Um, but upon reflection. You know, this was really the only way to go. And when you look at uh, successful teams, you see you see that, right? You see emergent players who understand their role, aren't prepared to call themselves a superstar, aren't prepared to inflict the club with that ego virus, um, and who are prepared to play. Yeah. Right. I can, I can name three or four of them on, on successful Real Madrid teams over the last few years alone, right? Yeah. Um, the... Uh, same thing with with uh, teams like Liverpool, right? Chelsea, others, uh, Bayern Munich. People, you have to have that mix. But you know the examples you raised were, hey, every transfer is important, right? Yeah, you, you can get it radically wrong as well, and you'll still win Liga for the most part, right? For the most part, you'll still be uh, a top ten team. But in order to do what we did against Liverpool the other night in order to come in with the storming mentality that simply solves the problem of the group stage like we did in Belgrade. Uh, Something else, something that neither Napoli nor Liverpool could do, by the way. Yes. Right. Um, That requires the proper fit. And that's where you would have to elevate Tuchel's work this year because to this point, I mean, we started the year and we looked at these transfers and you just don't know. Until you know, yeah. But I think now we have enough of a body of work to be able to say, not only were these um, smart decisions, but they were decisions that elevated the overall competency of the squad, uh, right? Yeah.
0: And and speaking of ego disease, as the term you just used, Adrian Rabiel has <laughs> had, I would say, one of the probably one of the this is probably the worst year of his professional career. In the sense that all the years prior where he was in the ascendancy, and now he's sort of hit this sort of wall. And I find him well, to be... Well, and
1: Deschamps left him behind yes. for a winning World Cup squad. He demonstrated that he was not absolutely not needed yes. to win the World Cup. Uh, right.
0: I find him to be a fascinating, maybe not tragic figure, but he has elements of Greek tragedy in him, in that here's a guy who was essentially groomed and handpicked to be PSG's sort of long-term stalwart player. To be their Iniesta, to be their Xavi, to be that rock in the midfield that played there for 10, 15 years and led the club to Champions Leagues and all that stuff. And it, it looked like it was going that way. It looked like for years that this was a guy that was continuously getting better. He was continuously rounding out his game. There were hiccups here and there, and we'll kind of get into... Maybe those were sort of canary in the coal mine situations. But mentally, it seems like it's just completely fallen apart. Like, once they lost to Real Madrid at home, it felt like he checked out. And he checked out that whole last three months of the year, and that compounded on itself because it cost him a spot on the French national team, a spot that he probably should have had if he had continued his progression. Then he right. throws a hissy fit. He refuses to be on the reserves. France end up winning the World Cup, proving that he, as you said, was absolutely not needed at all. He comes back. He's given the captain's be- armband on multiple occasions by Thomas Tuchel, who seems to be bending over back seemed to be bending over backwards to try to get him back in the fold but it just didn't work he doesn't run the way he used to run his passing isn't as accurate and here's a guy that apparently either him or his mother expects to get 10 million euros a year from Barcelona and you have to ask yourself if he's about to get sold for 10 million euros in the spring in the in the winter just so we could get rid of the guy is Barcelona really gonna pay him 10 million euros? Like, yeah, I, I just don't, get I don't into believe, his head. I I, I,
1: I, don't, I don't, I don't believe. For, well, I, I, let me jump into Barcelona's mind first. I, I, simply don't believe they're gonna do that.
0: Yeah, I don't think so either.
1: I don't believe they're gonna do that. To jump back into Adrian Rabiot, you know, you, I think you're right in that there. He has a classically tragic uh, arc that he's on right now. And the reason that we call it classically tragic is because there's components of it that are absolutely quotidian, right? There are components that we have seen before. We have seen the uh, seemingly unstoppable, because we see the arc you're on, uh, player begin to develop. And we say, if he stays on that arc of development at that rate of development, this is going to be a world-class player, right? And then what happens is they get a sense of themselves. Um, They have, in this case, their mother and that entourage in their ear telling them that they're better than they actually are. They stop working. And the mistakes they were making when they were this really young player that was on this arc of development are now the the mistakes they're still making when they're supposed to be a position-secure, 26-year-old, solid first-team starter, right? And at that level, those mistakes are unacceptable, right? Whereas before, you would say, well, he's coming along. He he reminds me very much of the arc that Mamadou Sacco was on, right? Here's a player... PSG had to d- determine this player, he was the youngest named Captain. Um, this is a player that is going to be our French rock in, in the back for 10 years. It's a, It's a similar arc. You have all this development that's happening. You start to get a sense of yourself. You stop working. Your development plateaus, and actually you're now not on the arc people expected you to be on, and actually where you are is sometimes deficient for what's required. And if Adrian Rabio were to look anywhere, it's not to the, the hallowed halls of the camp now. He needs to look at the career of Mamadou Sakho and say, do I want to leave the sort of non-legacy uh, that he left at PSG? No one has been given more of an opportunity to take a role, define a role, and dominate a role for PSG in the past five to seven years than Andre and Rabiot, no one. He's not going to get that opportunity at any other club. If he moves, no matter where he goes, the expectation is going to be high-level performance with none of the mistakes, not you're still a project that's being developed. We have all this investment in you. It's going to be, we're paying you now for a result, not for a possibility. And so somebody's got to get his head right. Um, and I don't know who is in a position to do that because very often people will say you need a conversation from your mother to get your head right but in this case his mother's part of the problem yeah but,
0: so that, I but that's what but I, and I think that's where I almost think you talk about classically tragic it's almost edible in that way right. right where it's like should your should your mother be your agent is that like the you know sometimes in a story the flaw the flaw fatal flaw made it, or the tragic mistake is made at the beginning, but it doesn't get fully realized until the end, is it as simple as it's a conflict of interest to have your mother, somebody who you naturally are going to listen to and take more credence to what they say, because it, obviously they're your mother. They are supposed to have your best interests at heart you're supposed to sort of lean on them for advice and counsel and, and comfort and warmth and all that stuff. But when that same person becomes the person that's dealing with your money and trying to get Take, you paid...
1: Taking 10% off of your labor.
0: Yes. Right. It, beca- it It becomes this massive conflict of interest where your mother can cease to be your mother and becomes your agent, but she's still your mother. And you listen to her, but you, you don't really have... I, I just feel like
1: if she has a fiduciary interest in his next contract, is she going to be the person to tell him the truth that he's not ready? Yeah. To ask for that number? Exactly. Or is she going to the... say it doesn't matter whether you're ready or not? I'm ready for ten percent of that next contract.
0: Yeah, and it's and it's and of course your mother thinks you're better than you are. I don't think his mother. I don't think any mother can sort of. Some well, shit. some mothers
1: some others do that. Some mothers will be the ones that will tell you the truth about yourself, yeah. right? Because they don't want you to walk around in this world under any illusions, right? <laughs> yes. Some others will do that. But you're right in that the, the real issue is she's making money on the back of what happens, right? She has yeah. an entirely set of other interests that would be contrary to this moment and, and telling this truth, right? Because it hurts her. It literally hurts her pocketbook to do that.
0: Yes, and it's just it's just a conflict of emotions too, which right. is like you want your son to achieve his dream, but you also have to have his best financial interests at heart. And at this point now, is she being told by she's probably being told by Eric Abidal and uh, Bartomeu that yeah, of course we're going to give your son 10 million euros a year. He's a great player, and she wants to believe that. Not only is her as his agent but as his mother. So do you I kind of feel like she's getting taken for a ride here and when Adrian hits the the transfer market and he's a free agent, that number is gonna look oh, probably about half of what it was. That's right because now he has no leverage and it becomes a situation where he's gonna have to take less money than he wanted, probably for less years than he wanted. And it's going to cost him millions of dollars.
1: I guess I would feel entirely different about rabio's the power that he had in this moment had Deschamps invested in him. Yeah, right? I mean, even if he went and had an average World Cup, he would be in a position to say i'm on I'm a midfielder. maybe I started some games, maybe i maybe I came off the bench some games." but I'm a midfielder on the World Cup French team, right? He'd he'd be in a different position. But right now what he is is a player where other clubs are looking at him and going, your national team didn't want to invest in you at all. Not they didn't start you. (laughs) They didn't bring you. Yeah. And a club that we, you know, the clubs that he would consider would be our peers in terms of, you know, uh, world football, a club that we consider our peer in Paris Saint-Germain isn't doing everything they can to hold on to you, what's actually wrong with you? Yeah. Right? And that's going to diminish any number. He's not going to get the number that he thinks he's going to get. And then what? Right? Because he still has not done the work to maximize his arc. Right? And I think that then you're in a doom loop. You're no longer in this flywheel of positive momentum. You're in something else entirely. And, um... You know, anything can happen at that point. Who knows? Um, I think Lucas Moore, for example, has has flourished, right, over 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 at Tottenham. But um, the the bottom line is, if 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 his mom is incentivized at all by this ten million dollar number, I think that's fiction.
0: Yeah, and it's and it's it's naivete which right. is, again, why your mother should not be your agent, because <laughs> right. it, 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 it's that, it, it puts you in that position. Um, last thing before we go, and this has been fascinating. I obviously want to do this again. We'll, we'll cover even more stuff. But last thing, um, for the rest of this season, what sh- I'm trying to even think how to phrase this. What should be PSG's goal in the sense of... Do do you like who, who are your investment pieces? Like you're 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 Thomas Tuchel. You're you know that there's a very good chance that Antero Henrique's not going to be there, so you're going to have a new sporting director. And I think what I think what's important about this year, not just for the Champions League, but for years to come, is to sort of set up your team, set up your your pieces, your chess pieces. And sort of say, okay, here are the guys we're riding with. When the new guy comes in, the new sporting director comes in, I'm Tomas Tuchel, I can have a conversation with that guy and go, here's who I like to keep, here's who we can get rid of, here's who I want. If you're sort of in that war room for the next six months, because I do think these are a very critical six months for this club, not even just on the field, but off the field and just sort of how they do their business, it, let's say, and we'll do this little exercise. Let's say you had to keep, let's say there were seven untouchables. Who are your seven untouchables? Who would be the, who would, let's start with that and we'll build from there. Who are your seven untouchables? Like, you cannot transfer this guy. You cannot loan this guy. This is part, these guys are part of my team moving forward. Who are your seven untouchables? And we'll go from there.
1: <laughs> a good question. I mean, I think if you had asked me in the emotion of the post-Liverpool way my list would probably be different, but you've given me time to, to come back to my rational senses, so I thank you for that. Uh, um, my seven untouchable players, my seven untouchable players. If you... You know, I, you know, you're going to be surprised, maybe, to, to this list, but obviously um, Neymar and, and, and Mbappé yep. are on that list. Okay. That's two. They're on mine. I would actually add Gianluigi Buffon hmm. to that list.
0: But, for a, I, but, but for a year, uh, you mean?
1: Well, for as long as he wants to remain affiliated with our club. Okay. Be, because the issue for me... Is that the missing component that we had, that the components we have this year that we're missing in the previous years, is mentality and psychology, and I think that he has done something alongside Tuchel in that locker room to create the congeniality, and with his personality, with the congeniality combined with the absolute professionalism, I think without Buffon in that locker room, how successful is Tuchel at getting? The type of overall complete play that we got, particularly in the first half of that last Liverpool game. Yeah. I think I think he helps with that. Um, I think he has made Thiago Silva, for example, a better captain. Right. Yeah. Um, so that's that's one of my surprise ones. Um, the uh, the other one that I would also comes immediately to mind is Marco Verratti. Right.
0: He would be on nine too.
1: Word on the street is. Tuchel has been able to approach him and and say to him, "This um, every now and then smoking that you're doing behind the scenes, I need you to stop that." And he stopped it.
0: He's saving his life.
1: He's saving his he's saving his life. He's saving the the potential of a long a longer career. He's transformed that that guy. And I said um, on another uh, PSG talking podcast that we've had that. For me, ever since he had that dalliance with Barcelona, he hadn't been Marco Verratti to me until very recently under Tuchel. Um, and I think that that's a result of that work. And when he is that, he is invaluable. So I, I keep him as well. So that's four. Um, uh, <laughs> I think Marquinhos is five. Okay. Um, and the reason I say that is because when his, um, the diversity of of the deployment for him is also very important, right? You know, we talked about Tilo Kara coming on board and he can be played in multiple positions. Well, so can Marquinhos, right? Um, And until we solve that number six, which is a different question than you asked me, um, I have to keep Marquinhos because he helps me with rotation in that defensive midfield position as well as the work he can do as a central defender. And don't forget, as a right back, right? He he played there there for us as well. So Marquinhos um, is five and then um, uh, six and seven are Edison Cavani and I'll talk about that in a minute Um, and uh, Angel Di Maria. Hmm. And so let let me talk about those for a quick second. We haven't seen the, the downturn this year. This year, we've flown relatively high, right? We've set in records, European records for the top five leagues in, in consecutive wins. We have taken what it was undoubtedly the group of death in the UEFA Champions League and won the group. We have flown relatively high. And the mentality that I trust when things aren't going as well is Cavani over some of our other players. What do I mean by that? I mean that I've seen him, when things aren't going well, be the guy that's running back, right? Yeah. I've, I've seen him, when things aren't going well, be the guy that finds that last-minute goal right i need cavani on my squad because i know things aren't going to go i have to plan for things aren't going to go perfectly this season what happens when mbappe and neymar get tired what happens when they need a little adjustment to their mentality who fills that gap we are right now living in a space where we feel like we can forget about cavani but i think that that's a mistake and we'll find at the end of the year how thankful we were to have him and how thankful we were to have such a complete squad when others falter, I think he's going to step up. So that's the type of guy I need on my squad on a continuous basis. And Angel Di Maria, because there are lots of Angel Di Di Marias. Um, The Angel Di Maria we're getting this year, the Angel Di Maria we're getting under the Tuchel regime, is the Angel Di Maria you can invest in. It's the Angel Di Maria you can keep. It's the one that when you're having trouble breaking down defenses at the league or at the Champions League level, he's the guy that sees the diagonals that you talked about in terms of the Tuchel training, right? Yeah. He's, the guy, he's the guy that creates the space for the opportunity for not only a Neymar and an Mbappe to run in but a Thomas Mounier to combine with, right? Sometimes we don't break things down until he breaks them down. And, um... I don't think we can underestimate that as well. So Mm -hmm. those would be my seven. I am also very prepared to be wrong on that. (laughs) But that's who's in my mind right now.
0: And that's the difficulty of the exercise, which is, if you're Tomas Tuchel and you plan on staying around for a little bit, you have to build your team based on the guys that you think you can sort of form into the core of a multiple Champions League winner or a Champions League finalist type of team. Right. And I agree with some of the ones you said. Obviously, Neymar and Mbappe are up there. I would have Marquinhos as well. I'd have Verratti as well. The other three I'd have would be different. And I kind of, looking at it differently, I kind of look at it as an age thing. Right. I One of my guys would be Musa Diaby. And because I think what he's shown, which is he's only 19 years old. He's as old as Kylian Mbappe is. But here's a guy that if your team is built around the sort of interior speed of Neymar and Mbappe, being able to run off of defenders and, you know, make those sort of connection passes and have those sort of countering, Diaby right now is a classically good wing player. Like, if you ask him to just run the wing, get a pass from Neymar out of midfield and then cross the ball in, he's really good at that. And that's at 19 years old. Imagine this kid at 22 and 23. He has a little bit of Di Maria's passing ability. He's got a good enough cross in the box. The guy has an eye for goal. And Tuchel has trusted him in a way that he does not trust like a Tim Weah. Like, he's not putting Tim Weah on the bench in Champions League games. You know what I mean? He's putting Musa Diaby there. So that's clearly an fair point. He clearly sees him as a guy that if he had to, he could play and not have a complete disaster. And for a 19-year-old to be in that spot, that's pretty, you know, at that at that point at 19 years old, a guy like Guzman Dembele was still at Dortmund and still at Rennes. So it's right. like he's way ahead of the curve already. That's why I have him as a, as a holding block. I would put Presnel Kimpembe in there. He's been inconsistent, I know. But there's still, I think there's a physicality with him that once he finally figures out how to harness it, is going to make this defense really good. And he'll be able to fill in to the Silva role in a way that's different from Silva, but still good. Like, I think he brings that physicality. He just, for, for some reason, is not having a great second half of 2018. But really I still is,
1: he really isn't,
0: <laughs> but I still I want to go with right now, I still think he's valuable, and I still think he will turn it around. I can be proven wrong on him, but I feel like he'll turn it around and he'll figure it out because I think he has the right attitude. like I don't think it's an attitude issue with him no and the
1: question my, is the question is whether he's peaked
0: yeah, and right. my seventh would be telo Cara. okay i I just think. The guy's playing center back in a back four, center back in a back three, right back in a back four, right back or right wing. He can he can do decently enough offensively to sort of get up the field and help with the attack. But the guy is really more of a just do-it-all defensive player. And when was the last time you could say PSG had sort of a do-it-all can play pretty much all four positions on the back line, can co up the field, can defend one on one, and again only twenty one years old. What yeah, is I, he going to be I, at twenty four, twenty five? And if you I,
1: I, I don't think that you uh, you're, you you uh, you Tilo Carr was on my mind. I was, just, I was like, do I do I bring him over? I think you've got an incredible, an incredibly smart pick in Diaby because we can't forget the investment that Tuchel has made in him and the differentiation you made between Diaby and Weah is the right one, right? Like, hey, yeah, we played both of these guys early in the season because people were coming back from World Cups, but Diaby has played in important moments, right?
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) Diaby has made... Diaby has won games, as a matter of fact, right, Um, in terms of some of his crosses. So I think that's that's a potent pick. I... You've caught me in a moment where I feel... Less uh, enthusiasm about the Kimpembe project. Yes. Than I've ever felt.
0: Understandable, completely right. understandable. Yeah. And I, I worry I, that we've peaked there. But, but my my whole thing is, if, if there's going to be a point where Thiago Silva is going to go do something else. Yes. And you need three quality center backs in modern football. You can't live with t- we. We had a time where we were basically had three center backs on the roster. And if one of those guys, like if Silva and Marquinhos, one of them went down, it would be Kempembe that stepped in. And you need three. And I think if you're you're Tuchel, you have to know that you need three. And right now, Kempembe is your best shot at being that third guy. Maybe it's Marquinhos, but that I think, it probably is Marquinhos, but then you have Who's your third center back? You have to now go get another center back. Right. And right. if my hope is that Kimpembe will bounce back in 2019 and be a little more fit, be a little more disciplined, that would be my hope. But those would be my eyes. And if there's one person, if I'm, t- if you put yourself in Tomas Tuchel's shoes, he sits down at the table and he goes, okay, what's our budget right now? What can we spend? All right. If budget wasn't an issue, we just talked about the budget, but if budget wasn't an issue, the one guy that we could get in that would not just be a star player, but the kind of player that fits into that, what the PSG culture is. So take it all into account, and this will be it, I promise. Take it in all of it into account, not just how they fit on the field, but how they fit in the locker room, how you think they would fit in Paris as a culture and as a club, as a whole. Because I think that's somewhat of a different question than saying, okay, we're going to get Leandro Paredes in January because he can do this, this, and this. That's a need. I'm talking about who would be that guy, that that guy that you bring in that's like, oh, he's perfect for this, for this project. I know that's tough, so... No,
1: I, I'm go- well, I'm going to... This is going to be a hot sports opinion. Um, and this is not a guy... That I see talked about, but this is a guy that I've watched for a while. Um, I actually planned on raising him on our internal uh, Slack channel uh, for feedback, and I, I will after after this. But this will be the first time I've talked about him publicly. Um, and I'm thinking about him in the way uh, that you talked about, which is, you know, not just straight who's the star we can go get but who in terms of all the stuff we've talked about on this podcast who fits fits the team mentality who's going to integrate well who do we think has the right mindset and psychology who has upside because we invest in youth for this branding piece as well right and the guy I think about is Andre Frank Sambo Hmm. this is the guy I think about and I think about it for a couple of reasons one he is uh, a solution at the number six role, right?
0: Yeah.
1: He can do that, and he can do it very, very well. Two is that his background includes not only the enemy in Marseille, but he also has some experience in the Premier League with, uh, or not in the Premier League, he has some experience with Fulham, right, In, in, in English
0: football. No, he's in the Premier League. They're in
1: when last they're in place, the but they're in the Premier League. Yeah, that's right. They're they're in the Premier League. That's right. They, not for long, but they're in the Premier League. Um, and he also gets robust appearances appearances with his national team. Right. So yeah. you have somebody who has enough ambition about himself to understand the opportunity he would be would be being given with uh, coming to PSG. You have somebody who understands the league, right? You have somebody who's made European appearances, albeit Europa League appearances. You have somebody who has multiple league experience. The guy is only 23, but he's a solid six foot one, robust speed, can play box to box. I think he, um, Cameroonian, speaks French. I think if they got him in a room, because I don't know him. But if they got him in a room and the mentality was right, right, the thinking was right, if Tuchel looked at him and said, my feel for him is right, that would be somebody that I would go out and invest because now it's about getting those pieces that simply refine the pie, right? It's not about transformative pieces that we need to reconfigure a whole bunch of stuff around the energy of some new superstar. It's about we got our superstars. It's it's this theory we had earlier in the podcast about stars and people who know their role players and bringing this guy in for that defensive
0: role. Yeah, that's an interesting that's an interesting one. And I always liked how he played with Marseille, and I think he falls into that sort of Bakayoko uh, right boat. But I
1: think he's better.
0: Right. Yes, but I think it's hard for him to show that at Fulham, like. Right. That was a that was just a money move. Like I, I think you're right in thinking that way, of to go in that angle because it's like you're gonna get him at a lower rate, and he's a guy that can fill a role and he can sort of fit into the culture of what you're trying to do. I I agree with that. My my thought is different in that I think they need like. I'm trying to even think, like, I think they need something in that midfield. I don't necessarily think it's that physical presence, although the physical presence would be nice. I just think they need two midfielders who they can play at the same time regularly without sort of having to, like, keep adjusting and changing. Because we keep trying to tinker with this. And for two years it's been like, okay, it's this guy and this guy. No, it's that guy and that guy. And I think at this point it's like, get a guy who's gonna sit next to Marco Verratti, who you who can compliment a little bit, but is also you know, of that caliber. And I would I would say you look you almost I almost look Italian. I almost look at a guy like Alan and just say, get two guys who you can stick there, who can work Tuchel's system, and you don't have to worry about it. It's like, we've been worrying about this midfield position for years and years and years. And you get a guy like an Allen, and I didn't say get Allen, but get a guy like an right. Allen. Right. You get a guy who can just s- sit there, do what you need him to do really well, move the ball, circulate the ball. And I liked, and I'll say it like a guy like Allen, because what Allen would, in that Napoli, in those Napoli fixtures, I was really impressed with that Napoli's midfield and their ability to just circulate the ball to the wings really quickly and put PSG's defense in trouble. And I don't even think Liverpool did that good of a job of putting PSG's defense in trouble. I thought Napoli, especially in that first game, just consistently put PSG's defense in trouble. And a lot Absolutely. of that was because they just could spin that ball around and they knew where to go with it. And I think in Tuchel's system, they need guys on either side of that midfield who can just get the ball, ping, 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 right to the wings and let those guys, let their front guys just run. And if they have that, I think that would be the secret missing piece because I think that fits what Tuchel wants to do as opposed to what he's doing now out of sort of necessity.
1: That's that's not a bad idea either. I know that our uh, analysis of uh, Napoli is, <laughs> is heavily, or, or Napoli's players is heavily informed with how they dealt with us and really dealt on us yeah. in that first match. Um, their midfield dictated to us. We But part of the reason we're tinkering, right, is because we we don't have a solution. So you and I are thinking the same way, right, which is the tinkering needs to come to an end. We need a solution uh, alongside Verratti. I think we need a solution that not only is alongside Verratti, but frees Verratti to have his head up more and more over the course of the remainder of the year forward and less down trying to, you know, create space and, 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 and do his turns and get, and get free. Um, I want him in early PSG Marco Verratti mode, which is I'm free because I've got Tiago Malta blowing things up behind me and I've got Blaise Matuiti running box to box. I am free to make the incisive game destroying pass, right? He was, he was so, he is so skilled at that. And until we get, a configuration that positions him to receive the ball in space and allow him to have his head up, then we're not we're not going to get those runs from deep with who I think is the fastest accelerating forward or winger in the history of the game, and Kylian Mbappe, or those runs from deep from Neymar or anybody else that allow uh, Verratti to do those those just destroy the defense passes um, without him being free to receive the ball in space, and that comes from a configuration of the midfield that really has a destroying number six back there who can also run. So we're saying the same thing. The tinkering in the midfield has got to come to an end. Yeah, It'll be interesting. I, I really believe that PSG knows that as well. It'll be really interesting to see um, the direction in which they go, um, and hopefully they continue this pattern that they've had of trusting... Um, the leadership they have in the Tucumán regime, in particular, to bring people in who are a great fit for what they're trying to do.
0: Well, I, I've said last question five times now, but I'm really <laughs> serious this time. I mean, this is—I uh, mean, hey, people are going to enjoy this. I—if I, you—if it's too long, watch it in two parts. It's okay. But that's how—that's how—that's how, that's how, that's how apps it. work. You can watch it in right. two—you can watch it in two parts. Um, round of sixteen. <laughs> um. I hate to say best matchup, worst matchup, because I think that that's sort of a loser mentality of like, hey, we don't think we can really win this thing, so let's see if we can get the easiest team possible to get us along the way.
1: Right. You and I have never podcasted together before, but we think the exact same way on that. I want to look back on a year where we won something and we went through the best to
0: get it. Yes. So I won't ask best matchup, worst matchup in that sense. I'll say what matchup would intrigue you the most in sort of like which matchup would you like t- compared to like hey okay, so let's say we have a show where we talk for an hour and a half who you know imagine that but <laughs> what what matchup would fill that time up the most like which matchup has the most angles to it the most um the most intrigue the most tactical intrigue the most other intrigue where it's well, I like think
1: right now it has to be the matchup with Atletico Madrid yes Right, it would have to be uh, a PSG Atletico Madrid matchup. Allows us to talk tactically. It allows us to talk coaches. Allows us to talk philosophy. It allows us to talk where the clubs are in the run up to the to the the round of 16 matches. You know, you got PSG dominating their league. You got Athletico competing for the lead the lead in La Liga. Um, That to me has to be uh, the matchup that um, is the most compelling. Um, out of the out of the folks that are uh, available to play, but running a close second is Tottenham.
0: Yeah, I, I think Tottenham's fascinating, by the way. Yeah,
1: that is a fascinating matchup. You've got the legacy PSG cat and Mauricio Pochettino coaching that squad. Um, there are so I mean Tottenham to me, and you know historically it's been this way even back to the Lineker era. But Tottenham to me is the most European of the English Premier League sides um, besides Manchester City uh, in that um, it certainly plays to possess the ball. It plays to demonstrate outstanding skill with Erickson and others. I really like Tottenham, which is a problem, um, because I, I, if I see them, I'm going to you know, feel differently if we see them in the round of 16. Um, but those two matchups to me are, are highly intriguing Um, but you know, you can make the case for, for several, for, for others as well. Right. Which is, you know, I have a feeling that we're going to do all this talking and we're going to end up with Schalke, not fewer. Right.
0: (laughs) Yeah.
1: And then you go, okay, what's the history of French clubs going to, to Schalke and winning and and it's pathetic. Right. When you really look at it, um, you know, you got the Frankie de Jong saga happening at Ajax, which yeah. makes that match interesting. But yeah, for me, Atletico and Tottenham are the most compelling.
0: Yeah, and I would say um, Roma's probably whatever. Like, Pastore is basically the story. Like, right. Don't let right. Pastore but they're, but score. They're also in...
1: running eighth in Serie A. Yeah, right. but so it's like, don't let Pastore...
0: Don't let Javier Pastore, like, ruin our Champions League hopes. Like, that would be some sort of weird, sick irony. And Manchester United, I think we should destroy them. Personally, I just, I like, I don't see, I, I, I see Jose Mourinho, like, it's weird. He's not, he's not doing well, but he's also not doing bad enough where they can, like, justifiably fire him. So Manchester United are in this like weird vortex of we can't well we're not going to go anywhere but we really can't fire him either at least till well, the end I, of the year. I,
1: I, yeah, so I guess I don't know I don't know how much we're going to talk about as as a concluding piece the the discourse that that you've ended up having now with members of the ESPN FC group.
0: But no, we don't need to talk about that. It speaks for itself. Yeah. All I, right. So Mel, I, I, um, well, I
1: was, I'm just saying that the the Man United fixture. Feels so typical, and I feel like the typical discourses would emerge from it.
0: Yeah, and,
1: it, and it's just uninteresting to me.
0: I, I would I know? would agree with that as well. So Mel, um, plug your Twitter um, to the to the hundreds of people that listen to this show, uh, more than hundred. <laughs> again, after Craig opened his big mouth, um, just let everybody know where they can find you, and um, we'll sign off on that.
1: Yeah, I'm Mel Brennan. I'm at Melvin Brennan sixteen uh, on Twitter. Um, I tend to uh, focus on a couple of things. Uh, I'm a leader in the YMCA movement, so you'll see me talk about that. Uh, And then I focus in on on this club of mine, Paris Saint-Germain. So um, that'll be what I talk about, Mel Brennan 16.
0: Perfect. So for Mel Brennan, this has been PSG Talk contributor Mark Damon saying au revoir for now.